welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and help authors find more joy in their writing. I'm your host, Marissa Meyer. Thank you so much for joining me today. One thing that is making me super happy this week is the Great British Baking Show. Uh, I had one of my publicists years ago told me to watch this show, and she was like, it's just the happiest, most pleasant thing you will ever watch. Um, And yet it took me a long, long time to take her word for it and actually go and watch. And now I'm obsessed. And I, I just, it's so happy. And there's so many pastel colors and beautiful cakes and pastries. And all the contestants are so nice and supportive of each other. And it's a, a nice change from our, like, so melodramatic American reality TV. <laughs> uh, so I've really been loving it. And one of my daughters has now gotten super into it. Um, so that's been a fun thing for us to enjoy as a family. What else? I am so happy to be talking to today's guest. She is the best-selling author of about a gazillion fantasy books for young readers including the Iron Fae series, The Call of the Forgotten, The Blood of Eden, The Talon Saga, and her latest, The Shadow of the Fox Trilogy. Please welcome Julie Kagawa. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fabulous. How are you today? I am also fabulous. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. And you're talking about the, the, the British Bake Off. I've only seen like a couple episodes, but they're so happy and they're so, you know, it's like you said, all the, all the contestants are very supportive and it just makes me wish I could bake because I'm a disaster <laughs> at baking. I, it's not a great skill for me either. Um, and I, I agree. It's one that I envy in other people. And the things that they come up with are just so brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, my um. Sorry, I'm gonna like interrupt. Uh, no. Yeah. Talk British baking like, show. Let's do <laughs> my baking disaster. So I was in high school and I was doing a you know a, a baking um uh, what do you call the fundraiser thing where you're supposed mm. to bake and you know sell cookies and stuff. Yeah, like a bake um, sale. And yeah. I was gonna bake pumpkin bread. Mm. And put them in this cute little set, you know, saran wrap, the colorful saran wrap. So I had this idea to bake a bunch of pumpkin bread and it's my, like, I'm like 16. So I'm just making my pumpkin bread and adding the ingredients and it comes out of the oven and I bite into it. And it was like biting into a saltine. It was so awful and salty. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? What happened? So I'm going through all of my ingredients and I come across Okay, I had to add half a cup of sugar. Uh huh. Guess what I added? Oh no! <laughs> I'm like, really, really? Did I really do this? Yep, I did. I added half a cup of salt. Oh no! Well, I'm so glad that you tasted it before trying to sell it. <laughs> I know that would be not even my dogs would eat it. I tried to give it to my dogs, and they're just like looked at it and then looked at me and then walked away. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm not a baker. I I just, I admit. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. I used to, I've never been good necessarily at baking, but it is something that I used to enjoy on a, you know, occasional basis. Um, And then when I became a mom, I had these fantasies because I remember baking with my mom when I was a Mm -hmm. kid. 
And, and so I, I had all these, you know, mom dreams of having my two girls and we'd all have matching aprons and it would be so Aww. joyful and relaxing. And they're, they're now five and a half and we still have uh. not gotten to that point where it's joyful and relaxing. It's just a huge <laughs> mess and they just want to eat and taste everything. Right. And they're like, they want to measure themselves, but aren't quite having the like, <laughs> you know, coordination. Less, less interested in the baking and more interested in the eating. Yes. Yes. Very <laughs> much so. And anyway, I'm like, surely there will come a day when this <laughs> stops being like totally stressful for all of us. Uh, anyway, um, books, your books. Oh um, yes. Books. This is what, yes, this is what yes. we're supposed to be talking about. I know. Well, we can talk about anything. It's the happy writer, anything that makes us happy. Awesome. Um, but I loved the shadow of the Fox trilogy. Um, oh, I warned you, you before we started this episode that I was going to gush. Uh, and I, I do it. I read it earlier this year, all three books. I read the first one and then immediately went online and ordered the next two um, and was so happy that they were all out because it seems like so often I read the first book in a series and then you have to wait so long. Wait so long, yes. yes. Um, but they were all out in the world and I binge read the whole thing and it like skyrocketed to the top of my list of um, some of my all-time favorite fantasies um, of you. all time. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so... For starters, why don't you tell listeners what the Shadow of the Fox trilogy is about? Okay. Uh, well, uh, what I'd like to say when I'm trying to sound intelligent is Shadow of the Fox series is a story about, it's uh, based on Japanese folklore. It's a story about a girl who's also half kitsune um, who finds a scroll and discovers that this particular scroll that uh, the monks that she's been living with are protecting is actually part of an ancient incantation that every thousand years, if you recite this incantation, a dragon rises to grant you one single wish. And the dragon only appears every thousand years, and the time of the drag the, the time of the summoning is getting closer. So naturally, everybody in the world wants this scroll, um, and she is charged with taking a piece of the scroll, because the scroll is actually split into three different pieces to protect it from the people who would use it for evil. Um, so she's charged with taking the scroll, the piece of the scroll, to another temple to hide it and protect it. Um, and on the way, she runs into a slew of interesting characters, interesting creatures, all based on Japanese folklore. Um, and uh, in the end, that she in the end, she has to protect the scroll, protect the wish, try to prevent the dragon from being summoned. She has a bunch of, uh, she has a bunch of bad guys on her tail, the master of demons and all of these evil creatures. Um, and that's what I like to tell people when I'm trying to sound intelligent, but really it's just an anime in book form. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because it is, it so reads like an anime. Um, I set out to write an anime in the in the vein of Inuyasha, you know, Naruto, Fushigi Yugi, all of my favorite anime. Yes, I'm I I oh we're such kindreds because Fushigi Yugi was like the one at the top of my head that I kept going I like it's Fushigi, Fushigi Yugi, except Yugi. except Yumeko is like so much more likable than Miyaka. <laughs> Miyaka. Yeah, no, I was drawing a lot of parallels, which I think is one of the reasons why 
I loved the book so much is because it really brought back so many uh, just nostalgic memories of of my my years being immersed in anime when I was a teenager and in college. Um, and it, it was just a very nostalgic for me to read it. So I'm glad to know that it was one of your inspirations and I wasn't imagining that. Oh, no, no. It was like one of my big inspirations. So question for you. Did you cry when Noriko died? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> Probably not, because it must not have left that much of an impression on me. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Have I ever, if I remember crying at any anime? If, yeah. if, if something can make me cry, it's an instant favorite. And the mm-hmm. ending of Fushigi Yugi and some of like the ending of uh, Final Fantasy X. Um, yeah, they just made me sob, and they were huge inspirations for this book. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm thinking, like, not an anime, but Lilo and Stitch. Like, I sob when I watch Lilo oh, and Stitch. Yes. Um, but that's that's kind of one of the only things. Moana, I cry mm-hmm. watching Moana. And that's, like, much more recent. Like, when did that come out? Five or six years ago? And I'm, yeah. you know, a 30-year-old woman sobbing in the theater. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. nothing wrong with that I know get in touch with your emotions um yeah what is do you have like a favorite anime of all time um my favorite that's a hard one um favorite I can give a few favorites Fushiki Yugi obviously um I would I guess I would have to say Fushiki Yugi is probably my favorite because it is the anime that got me into watching more anime okay yep like before Fushigi Yugi, I had caught episodes of like Voltron and I'd caught, caught a few episodes of Sailor Moon. Um, but watching Fushigi Yugi was what launched me into just devouring all the anime I could get my hands on. So. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon was my my entry point into, into anime and it's still, it will always have that place in my heart. Oh, <laughs> Sailor Moon. Well, the few episodes that I watched, I was, I really liked it because I'm not, I'm not a girly girl, but it was much more, it, it anime seemed much more serious. Like the, the character of Sailor Moon, even though she was a ditz and a klutz, uh, she still had all these admirable qualities that, you know, she had the whole, the fate of the world on her shoulders. And though she had the fate of the world on her shoulders, she still found time to hang out with the friends and the sailors. Um, and it just seemed much more, not serious, but more deep than mm-hmm. a lot of the other cartoons that I've seen before. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was like, I loved superheroes um, and like, I loved the X-Men and, but when I started watching Sailor Moon, it felt like the first superhero story that was for girls like me. And it's like, she's a teenager and she has to go to school and she has crushes on boys. And then Mm -hmm. there's so many wonderful friendship storylines in it. And it felt like the first thing that was like speaking to me and not my older brother. Yeah. Um, So Yeah. Okay. What else? (laughs) Shout out the box. This is going to be one of those episodes I can tell we're going to have so many tangents. Um, Let's go down the derail train. train. (laughs) All of them, all of them. Um, Okay. So you mentioned before that uh, over the course of the story, your characters do run into a lot of mythological creatures. And having watched 
and uh, you know, a fair bit of anime. I was familiar with some of them. Like I knew about Kitsune and I knew about, you know, Oni and Hungry Ghost and some of this. But some of them, some of these creatures that they encounter <laughs> are like so bizarre. And I was like, wait, is this like an actual thing out of actual <laughs> Japanese mythology? So my question is, how much did you have to make up or was it like all drawn from true folklore? It is all drawn from true folklore. Oh, um, that's nice. Yes, pretty much. Um, with the exception of like a very few, like the, the scorpion twins aren't a particular yokai, but mm-hmm. you can you can see shades of them in a lot of anime. But all of the bizarre creatures, like the nerikabe, the, the living wall, it's an actual thing in Japanese folklore. Yeah. Um, there are just some really bizarre <laughs> creatures in, in Japanese folklore, and I love it. And that's why I wanted to write about them so much, because you know, some of the more common ones, you see, like the kitsune is very common, the oni, the yuki ona, all of those are very common, but there are some bizarre, bizarre creatures in yokai and, and, and uh, bakemono and all of that. And I wanted to kind of touch on them. Um, I can't, if I had put all of the bizarre uh, yokai and bakemono in the book, it would just be an encyclopedia of <laughs> weird creatures. Were there any that you like really wanted to find a way and then just weren't able to include it for some reason? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> don't know if this is going to be cut or not, but <laughs> there's a yokai. Um, and the, the legend is you're walking down a dark road or in, a, in the rain and you see this figure and he has a coat on. Um, it's uh, just this, this long coat. As you get closer, he turns around, throws up his coat, shows you his butt and the giant eyeball in his <laughs> anus. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> There's no I'm way like, I'm cutting that. We'll put a warning in the show notes. I don't think I can fit this in. I'm just, <laughs> just let that one be. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand why you made that decision. <laughs> Oh, that is so nuts. <laughs> so I'm, that's such a big part of this story of this world, all of these, these monsters and, and, you know, creatures that are encountered um, because it's very much a quest story. Uh, and it had been a long time since I read like an authentic quest story where they have to take this scroll to the temple and travel through all of these various lands and worlds and, you know, cities to get there. Along the way. Hijinks ensue. So at what point when you're conceptualizing this series, um, was part of it that you like wanted to include all of this folklore and then kind of built a story around that? Or did you have the idea for this quest story? And then it's like, oh, well, what do they see along the way? Let's maybe research some more folklore. Like how, how was the process like? Sort of, sort of the second one. I knew that they had to get from here to there. And I knew that things had to happen. Otherwise, it'd be a really boring story. And I knew that there were things that I had to have happen. Okay, they had, had, they had to run into this character because mm. this character is important to the story but like in the village of hungry ghosts the village of gaki um i wanted to showcase the gaki but also give the characters a little bit of a chance to 
build their character, like what they would do, give them some bonding um, because it's in that in that village and in that conflict that they kind of got closer together. So it's a cool way to showcase the gaki and also showcase the characters as well. And I kind of, you know, strang strung along these little scenes as I uh, told the story. Mm-hmm. No, and it comes together really well. And the the characters, you know, there's a, an ensemble cast um, of characters, and they're all so great. Um, and again, back to anime, and how it just <laughs> felt like these characters that you fall in love with, and you get to follow them on this really exciting journey. But you do a really great job of using these various creatures and these various encounters to show how the characters are growing and changing um, and developing really strong friendships and relationships, um, even though they're all they all start out in such very different places. Um, and as a reader, I just loved reading that. Thank you. I love the I love the group dynamic of like a lot of stories and the, uh, the quest anime or you know anime that I they're my favorite anime it always has a core group and the relationships between the core group are some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite thing to watch. Like they banter off each other, um, they tease each other, you know. In the case of like Inuyasha, you know, Inuyasha and Shippo are constantly, you know, butting heads and like teasing each other. Um, and it, it's the, that's what makes it fun for me. Yeah, I'm the same way. I love an ensemble cast and I love the banter and like those really fun scenes where they're all hanging out together and, you know, teasing each other and, and making jokes and that they're kind of fighting because there's always something to fight about. And I love that. That's as a reader. Um, and as a creator, actually, I'm, I'm with you that I love creating those scenes and those characters as well. Um, so one of the things that always tends to pull me into a story and one of the things that kind of tends to linger in my imagination after I finish reading it uh, is the romance aspect. I love romance. Um, it's It's my favorite thing about being a writer. And a lot of times in reading books, even when the romance may not be front and central, uh, it is, it is, you know, oftentimes my favorite part of a book. So I really want to talk to you about the romance because it's so good and it's such a slow burn. Um, and so I want to talk about uh, Tatsumi, mm-hmm. who is your your male lead. And he's like one of the most emotionally closed off characters, <laughs> like for good reason. And it's all explained really well why he is this way. Um, but the way that you've written him and the way that you've written Yumeko, um, like it has this feeling of like Yumeko is the only person in the history of the world who possibly could have cracked his shell. Um, and, and it just worked so beautifully. Um, so tell me, how did you go about like constructing their two characters? What were some maybe challenges that you faced in building them and uh, the romance? Oh, one of my favorite tropes is the happy-go-lucky, cheerful, you know, just positive, joyous character paired with the emotionless robot. (laughs) (laughs) Favorites. I'm having, oh gosh, I just, I hadn't thought of them in years, but there was, uh, in Veroni Kenshin, um, I don't know if that's one that you've seen, but Aoshi and 
the girl, what was her name? Anyway, they were like my favorite characters. And you saying that made me realize I think that's why I love Tatsumi and you make her so much. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. I'm sorry, you go. No, no, Samurai, Samurai X, like before the series, Samurai X um, with Kenshin, where he, sort of an origin story, Kenshin and, um, oh, what was the girl's name? Uh, I don't remember, but uh, he was this emotionless assassin. And, you know, he had actually done her a great wrong. And she was planning, I believe she was planning to, it's been a long time since I saw this movie, but she was planning to kill him in the end. And through circumstances that they both got thrown together, they fell in love instead. And it, the ending was beautiful and tragic. And I love it. I love tragic endings, if you could <laughs> tell. But just seeing her crack this emotionless assassin, um, who's really young. I think in the movie, he was like 14. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's yeah. young in the movie. But they fall in love and he comes to feel his feelings for the first time. And, you know, it's beautiful. Mm. So I love the trope of the happy-go-lucky paired with the emotionless robot. And you see it so often in anime as well. And it's just so charming just to see through just being herself, just being themselves, you know, this per this emotionless person doesn't want to, but they can't help themselves. And I just love putting those types together and, you know, just kind of having her chip away at his, his cold, emotionless shell bit by bit. And he doesn't even know what's happening. He doesn't get that he's feeling the feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, one of my favorite things. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. And yeah, and again, you just did a really, really good job with it. Um, and, and it's what's interesting about Tatsumi is that it's not that he doesn't have deep emotions because he clearly does. But, you know, through circumstances, um, which we won't spoil for the people who are going <laughs> to go read it, um, like he's just been forced to, to completely shut himself down. Um, and so then to watch as these emotions are slowly coming to the surface, uh, I don't know. I'm sitting here like feeling like a giddy fangirl all over just remembering. <laughs> I was reading about that too, or watching it, watching the, you know, the the cold, emotionless anime boy just kind of start to fall for the bubbly, you know, big eyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Yumiko too, I mean, she's, she is, she is exactly that. She is bubbly and happy and cheerful and bright and all of these things. Um, but she's not a stereotype. And I feel like that, you know, that, that character, that trope is so easy and to become the Miyaka stereotype, um, not to pick on Miyaka from Fushigi Yugi, but she, Miyaki I never cared for her. Bop over the head sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were moments. Um, but you may go, I mean, she's, she's intelligent. She's witty. Um, she's incredibly passionate and determined and, um, you know, so she, she really has a depth of character, uh, that, that goes beyond just this, you know, chipper personality. And I thought that in itself also kind of went a long way because, you know, she, she wasn't just kind of digging into Tatsumi's emotions. Um, but she also over the course of the story became someone that he could, uh, admire and respect. And so they had this like mutual respect for each other, which I really loved. 
Thank you. She was, Kitsune are, one of, are my favorite Japanese folklore. It's my favorite myth. They're my favorite creature. Um, I love Kitsune. And when I started out with creating Yumeko, she was going to be half fox. And Kitsune are in folklore, they're clever, they're playful, they're, they can be dangerous, they're notorious tricksters. So I wanted to make her cheerful and optimistic, but also give her that hint of playfulness and tricksomeness, which was in the beginning, she would always be playing tricks on these stoic monks that she lived with. You know, she'd turn a log invisible in front of the steps or, you know, make a closed door look open because foxes, the kitsunes are masters of illusion magic. So she'd use her illusions for these fun, obnoxious, but harmless pranks. And, you know, she kind of had that trickster personality as well as being cheerful and optimistic and kind of naive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was fun to watch her character arc too. Um, because she, you know, she does start out with these, you know, this, kitsune trickster you know but the monks kind of give her a hard time about that and she's kind of feels like you know kitsune aren't trusted and she doesn't really know who she is and yeah you know but watching her grow in confidence um and and develop her own self-worth um on a deep level i really i thought that was really well done too oh thank you you're welcome i know i said this was going to be all gushing i can't help (laughs) it stop it marissa be a professional um let's talk about fight scenes and action scenes because you like a ton of them. I love fight scenes. You do? You enjoy writing them? I do. Well, in that's fact, good because you wrote a gazillion. There's a lot of them in there, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like writing fight scenes. Fight scenes are easier for me to write. Well, when people say, what's hard for you to write? Um, my answer is usually romance scenes because oh, interesting. I'm trying so hard not to make it corny. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the fight scene, I can, you know, I'll just pop in an anime or I'll think of a fight scene that I've seen recently. And it's it's fun to write fight scenes, especially with these giant creatures and these big bads. You know, how, how are they going to overcome this massive Oni that's like 30 feet tall? Yeah, yeah. No, sometimes, it, yeah, it's, it's challenging. And there were times when I was worried for the characters and like, oh, how are they going to get out of this one? <laughs> Did you, because over the course of this series, there are so many battles and action sequences. Um, I can only imagine it must have been a challenge at some point to feel like you weren't just repeating like, oh, wow, it just feels like the same fight scene over and over, which it never does. Like, how did you go about making sure every one of them felt so unique? I actually had that same fear because it's in the last book, especially, there are lots and lots of big opponents they're you know giant sea monsters and a giant oni and a giant fox and a giant demon you know how am i going to make them different without you know sounding like the same thing over and over again and i think circumstances plays a big part like one of them they have to face a giant sea creature uh it's called uh called an umibozu and in japanese folklore Yumibozu is this massive yokai. Um, it's 50 feet tall. It's the, it's the silhouette of this 
bald figure, like this monk, and it rises out of the sea, and sometimes it demands tribute, but sometimes it just smashes your ship to kindling and then sinks back into the ocean again. Nobody knows much about it, where it comes from, how many of them are out there. It's just this big, massive, scary monster. Um, and in that fight scene, it really wasn't much of a fight scene. It was really <laughs> them trying to get away from the Umibozi before they, it drowned everybody. But it was in the middle of the ocean. It was on a ship, which was much different than the giant Oni they fought later, which was in a city, um, in the middle of a burning city. And the Oni had just smashed the gates open with the club and was, you know, standing there with his, you know, army of demons at his back. So the circumstances make it feel a little bit different. Yes. Do you, because uh, I know, because I have also had to write a fair number of fight scenes. Um, and for me, one of the biggest challenges is when there's a lot of people and characters involved. Um, because then I feel like I'm constantly like doing mental you know, flip-flops <laughs> trying to think, okay, where is this person and what should they be doing? And, oh, if they're over here, wouldn't they have attacked this person? But I can't have them attack, attack this person yet because X, Y, Z. And it's just like a big muddle. Um, and so like for me, I've started making, um, drawing like little graphs, um, almost like you'd see on like a football play um, with the coach and like they're over here and you have the line and the arrow. So what do you, how do you go, go about here, it? And then he goes here and you cut to the Ex right. Exactly. exactly. Um, so like, what is your method for like getting into that nitty gritty of actually like choreographing these scenes? For me, um, it's easier because I usually write in first person point of view. Mm. That's my problem. <laughs> the first person point of view. And it's what is that person seeing um, at that moment in time? I mm -hmm. use a lot of, oh, he saw from the corner of his eye, you know, this character rushing up to do this. Or he turned and saw this character rushing up to do this. Um, and it's what is that character seeing at that moment? And sometimes you, can, you can't see the entire battle. Uh, most times you can't see the entire battle when you're viewing it through the eyes of one person, but that one person can be seeing exactly what's going on around him and reacting to what is going on around him. And that's how I handle these fight scenes with multiple people. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. I, I don't know. I hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Instead of, so instead of like a bird's eye view where, you know, you're a hawk, soaring along and kind of seeing the battlefield and all the army spread out before you, you zoom down into the single soldier and that soldier in the battle and what that soldier is looking at and what he's feeling and seeing all around him. And it's very chaotic and it's very fast paced. Mm -hmm. And that's how I, you know, visualize my fight scenes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. How's, I have a publishing question for you, which might be boring. We'll edit it out if it is. <laughs> um, because I, I noticed that, um, these books were published eight months apart. Um, mm -hmm. and traditionally these days, uh, you know, fantasy series come out books, uh, one year apart from each other. And so I was curious why the accelerated schedule, was that something your publisher wanted or something you wanted? How did that work out? Um, that's, uh, generally the publisher's decision. 
when I was when I was writing the Iron Face series, um, the books were coming out every six months. What? Yeah. And, oh my! Uh, and they're that's... big books, aren't they? How yeah, many they're hundred thousand words. Yeah, thousand word books. Uh, but they were coming out every six months, which on the one hand was awesome. It was cool because it was getting more books out there quickly, and you know, people don't like to wait a year for the next book. Mm-hmm. And you know, the more books that got out there, my name was getting out there, and people were reading it, and so that was awesome. But on the other hand. I had to write two books a year. Yeah, right. Yeah, so um, the eight months is actually kind of nice because I feel I have a little bit more time um, to actually finish book. But that's a that's the publisher's decision. Oh, funny. So you've kind of hardened yourself to the schedule now. <laughs> yeah. Because I and did. Sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll do other things. In, I'll be working on. There was one year where I was working on three books in a year. Mm, mm-hmm. that was a little crazy yeah I can imagine um because I did um in you know preparing for this uh I, I went and you know was looking up your books and you know your career and all that and by my count you've published 18 novels four novellas and then contributed to three anthologies all since 2010 does that sound accurate that sounds right <laughs> <laughs> um so obviously, I mean, that makes you incredibly prolific. Um, and, and again, you're writing fantasy. So generally pretty big books. The epic tome. The epic tome. Um, and I know that can be really challenging to stay on top of these really tight schedules sometimes. Um, what are some things that you've learned maybe about yourself as a writer or um, about your abilities? Uh, just you know, in, as far as like staying motivated and staying productive and, and meeting these schedules? For me, um, I just, I have a job. I treat it as a job. I have a quota that I try to maintain every day. And my quota is a thousand words a day, normally, unless I'm under, you know, super deadline crunch mode when the dead, the, the quota kind of jumps up to like 1500, 1500 or 1700. Um, so yeah, I try to maintain a quota every day and just pound out the words, sit down, button share, here's my keyboard, go, you know, um, and that's worked pretty well for me. I, I discovered, so I discovered uh, Nano when I first when I was first writing The Iron King. Um, you know what Nano is? I'm sure you know. I sure do. I love <laughs> NaNoWriMo. Yes. Um, yes. National Novel Writing Month for any listeners yes. who may not be familiar. Yes. And before I had written, you know, The Iron King, I struggled. I would write when I could. I it took me it would take me like years to finish a book. But I discovered National Novel Writing Month, and I was really excited uh, to write The Iron King. And I just tried NaNoWriMo. And what NaNo taught me was I can write uh, 1,766 words a day, uh, seven days a week for 30 days. And at the end of those 30 days, you kind of have half a book. So I was really excited. And I I did another 30 days and I finished the book. So I wrote The Iron King in two months. 
sent it off to my agent. Uh, she sent it to uh, Harlequin Teen and the rest is history. So what Nano taught me was you can write a book um, in a short amount of time. And if you set a quota for yourself, you're going to get a lot done. So mm -hmm. that's what I that's what I've done since then. I've set a quota for myself and it, the quota jumps or, or declines uh, <laughs> Basically, the closer I am to my deadline, the more words I have to write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you bring up Nano. I My first book, Cinder, was also a Nano novel. Um, so I'm uh, a big advocate and I agree to everything you said, how much it teaches you about what you're capable of um, is one of the biggest things that I took away from or have taken away because I've, I've done it a number of times now. Yeah, because before I was, I would look at writers who could write a book in five months, and I would just be, how do how do they do that? How do they write mm -hmm. so much in such a short time? Because I like one book I spent four years on trying to finish. Um, but yeah, Nano was a great great tool to like just help me to sit down and focus and just get words on the page. Yeah. And it also helped with uh, me realizing that you can always go back and edit. First, you know, you should finish the book and then you can go back and edit it. Don't spend too much time on your inner editor when you're writing, otherwise, you know, it's going to stifle you. So just write knowing you can always go back and edit those bad pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, my, my process is, is very similar in my way of thinking about it. Completely. Um, so what are you working on now? Um, right now, I, well, I just finished uh, book one of the new Iron Face series. Oh, exciting. Yes, I'm so excited. It's, it's called the Iron Raven and it is um, the, another Iron Face book, but this time it's told in Puck's point of view. Puck finally gets his own book. <laughs> <laughs> and all the fans rejoice. <laughs> so I can't say too much of that because spoilers, but you know, it's going to be full of puck and all his puckishness and there may, may, may or may not be a love interest for him. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading between the lines. I think we can safely say there's a love interest. <laughs> um, cool. Okay. We are going to wrap this up with our uh, happy writer lightning round. Okay, on. here we go. First right. up, what book makes you happy? I am not very good at these lightning rounds. Uh, <laughs> you sounded so gung ho there a second ago. <laughs> no, I am ready. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> what book makes me happy? Um, Little Women. Good one. I don't good know job. why. It just it's popped into my head. <laughs> That's how lightning rounds are supposed to work. <laughs> Do you have any writing rituals? Yes, I drink a ton of caffeine. <laughs> what do you do to celebrate an accomplishment? Um, eat too much pie. Ooh. <laughs> do you have a favorite kind of pie? No, just pie. <laughs> pie, period. It's all in the crust. Yes. The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> pie. Uh, how do you fill the creative well? Um, I play video games a lot, a lot, a lot. 
What advice would you give to help someone become a happier writer? Ignore all the criticism and just write. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. This is your book and only you can write it. Just write. And lastly, where can people find you? In my chair in front of my desk. (laughs) How Um, about virtually? Where can people find you? (laughs) I'm on Twitter um, at Jake Gawa. I'll have a Facebook page, uh, Julie Kagawa, author. And I have a website um, that I'm, you know, it's pretty boring there. So come find me on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for so much. Hold on. We got to talk about anime, which is like (laughs) one of my favorite subjects. I know, we do. I'm stumbling over my words now. Um, But no, this was really, really enjoyable. Um, again, I loved the Shadow of the Fox series. It was very creatively inspiring for me. So thank you for that, too. Thank you. Uh, Readers, be sure to check out the Shadow of the Fox trilogy, uh, along with all of Julie's other awesome series. And of course, if you can support your local independent bookstore, we always encourage you to do so. Please subscribe to this podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, I would love it if you helped me spread the word to some other writers and readers that you think might also enjoy it. You can find me on Instagram at Marissa Meyer author and at happy writer podcast until next time, stay healthy and cozy out there in your bunkers and whatever life throws at you today. I do hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.